Um, as Matt mentioned, my name is Ryan. I am one of the pastors at Veritas Church in Cedar Rapids. We're a church that's about five and a half years old, planted out of Veritas Church in Iowa City, which was planted out of Cornerstone around eight years ago. Uh, I've been on staff for a little bit more than four years, and it's just been fun to see what God has done in Cedar Rapids, the second largest city in Iowa. But it's a city that has been um, awarded some labels or has made some lists that have been uh, interesting as we've engaged there. Cedar Rapids is named as one of the top 10 least Bible-minded cities in America. Uh, We're also on the watch list for being in the top 10 post-Christian cities in America, which which is really interesting when you think we're still in the Midwest, we're still in Iowa, and yet we're labeled as one of these places that is maybe far from Jesus and far from being a community filled with people who follow him. Um, I was actually a little bit skeptical of those titles when I moved to Cedar Rapids and we began engaging with people because it appeared like there were a lot of Christians there. I mean, people were still really nice. It's not like the East Coast or the West Coast where all the non-Christians leave, all the, men, all the mean people live. We thought this place is still Iowa, still a bunch of Christians And yet, as we began to engage with people there, I think we've begun to see the reality of the condition of the hearts of the people there. Um, I just want to share a little bit of kind of the cross-section of people that we have seen in Cedar Rapids, and I promise you'll you'll understand why I'm going there in just a minute. See, because I, I don't think that you generally see generations of believing families that are engaged in the life of the church, and then all of a sudden you wake up tomorrow and nobody goes to church anymore. And nobody believes in Jesus anymore. Even at an individual level, we all have people that once sat beside us in church that now when we look around, they're not here anymore. Or their families are no longer engaged in the life of the church. It generally doesn't happen overnight. I think we see a progression of how we get there. And here's what we've seen in Cedar Rapids. There are many, hundreds, thousands of devoted missional followers of Jesus in Cedar Rapids. They're in our church. They're in other churches. And it's really incredible to see. But I also see genuine Christians who have begun to lose interest. They've begun to get distracted. The love that they had for Christ at first has become just something that is fading, something that's not at the forefront of their mind anymore. If you ask them, do you want to be a devoted missional follower of Jesus? They agree. They want to. But it seems like more and more they need that reminder. All right, then I see a section of people who, who love the idea of Jesus, but not so much the character and the truth of who he really is and who he really wants and expects us to be. They think that the Bible is generally a good book. But when you begin to dig in and look at what it says, look at what it commands and instructs, they begin to question that and get skeptical of that. Uh, These people are skeptical of the church, skeptical uh, of who this God is that some churches say that God really is. Uh, Next, we see kind of a section of people that have, have moved to a place where they openly proclaim, my God wouldn't do dot, dot, dot. Like their version of God is one who happens to never disagree with them. It happens to be one that never confronts them. And so when they do show up at a church, they often struggle with church leadership. They struggle opening the Bible and looking at it it as their instruction and their command. 
And you might find them saying things like, I don't need a church to be a Christian. And then that next level of progression is we'll find a group of people that when you ask them about church, they'll say, man, I, I kind of remember a long time ago when my mom or when my grandma took me to a place called church, but I haven't been there. I haven't been interested in that in a long time. You see this progression, how the trickle begins to happen, going from people who love and follow Jesus and end up after a decade or two or a generation or two being people that can't even remember the last time they went in the doors of a church. And you can see how a community like Cedar Rapids, once strong families of faith going to church together on Sundays and now labeled as a place that's post-Christian, And here's the thing. I believe that much of this problem comes down to a lack of willingness to surrender. Because you remember when you were a brand new Christian, right? You remember that time when you were so in awe of God and wonder of God that, that anything you felt like he was asking you to do, you would do it, right? Want me to give my money to a church? Okay, how much? Right? Want me to give of my time to serve in the church? I'll even serve in the two-year-old room. Like that's how committed I am to following you and surrendering to you. Want me to pick up my life and, and move from Ames to a place like Iowa City to go from being a cyclone to a, to a Hawkeye for the sake of the gospel? Well, that's a little much, but, but you remember a time, don't you, when you were a new believer, where you were so in love with this God that saved you and rescued you that you would willingly surrender and you would willingly do what he wants you to do. You remember when you were blown away in awe of this God who loves you and cares for you and saves you. But over time, that fades a little bit, doesn't it? It seems like as we get older and more mature and we've been a Christian for a little bit longer, that awe begins to fade. And, and, and going with that is our willingness to surrender to what he asks us to do. Right? You remember singing the song. It's an oldie that's been redone a number of times. That song, I Surrender All. Right? There was a time in your life where you would loudly and proudly sing, I Surrender All. But maybe eventually you've begun singing, I Surrender Most. Or, or I Surrender Some. And eventually that progression leads you to a place of saying, I surrender nothing. And God, what have you done for me lately? Like that's the progression that happens. And nobody intends for that or desires that. Nobody becomes a Christian and says, I'm striving for mediocrity in following Jesus. And eventually I'm just going to walk away. Like nobody wants that or desires that. But sometimes that happens. And I think part of the root of that is our lack of willingness to surrender. Uh, Let me ask you this morning, what is or where is an area of your life that you just won't let go of? That, that you won't give over to God and let him have control of. Like, God, you can keep this part of my life, but I won't give you this, right? God, you can have my time. I'll serve. I'll, I'll spend time in my Bible, but don't touch my money. Or God, like, I'll happily write the check, but don't ask for my schedule. Don't ask me to change the way I lead my family. Leave my little addiction alone. I'll give you some, God, but I won't give you everything. What are the areas for you personally? Don't think about others. Don't think about your spouse or your friend right now. What about for you? 
what are there areas of your life that you won't surrender, that you're holding on to? Because listen, when we interact with God in this way, when we give him access to some things, but limit his access to other things, we begin looking at God as one that we can shape as one that we can mold. We begin looking at God as one that we're in control of what he thinks and what he desires and who he is. We make him into who we want him to be. And as we get into our text today in Judges 17 and 18, we're going to find out that is a really bad idea. Really bad idea. All right, so go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to start in Judges 17. Um, I've been listening along these last few weeks, listening to Matt and Joey um, preach from the book of Judges. And it's been fun to just kind of catch up to where you've been and what you've been hearing. Uh, I hope, church, that you are incredibly thankful for your pastors and your elders and your staff. They love you and they're faithfully preaching the word to you. And so I hope you're thankful for them. I know in talking with them, they love you guys. They love this church. And uh, you're blessed to have guys that will just continually bring the word to you, even through a book like Judges. Uh, It's been challenging. These last two sections are going to be just as tough. So let's read Judges 17. We'll start in verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read the Old Testament, just the way that it is written and the way that I read it, I can feel like I'm reading something that makes sense and something that's good. But then when you spend a little more time digging into it, you realize this is really messed up, right? Like this guy, Micah, stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mom a vast amount of money, a huge wealth of resources. He took it from his mom. He brings it back and says, hey, you uttered a curse about the guy that took it. That actually was me. And she turns to him and says, well, blessed be be you by the Lord. Like that doesn't make sense, right? I don't know if they skipped the part where she took him out back and beat him for a while. Like, I don't know how that went. It doesn't make sense that she would give this blessing, but this text is going to get even more odd than that. Verse three. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine And he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Uh, Again, you you read that and it kind of sounds okay, right? Like she wants to dedicate this money to the Lord. And so she wants to do that. And it it almost sounds good. But what does she do? She makes a carved image, an image of God. And this isn't some false idol. This isn't some statue of some pagan God. She just wants to make an image of God that she could worship. It doesn't sound that bad, right? Exodus 20 verse four, this is commandment number two. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, which would include God, or that is in the earth beneath, which would include God, or that is in the water under the earth, which includes God. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, I, the Lord, your God am a jealous God. Micah's mother said she wants to dedicate this 
to the Lord, and then she goes and does the very thing that God has said, don't do that. Like, don't make an image of me. Don't bow down and worship this thing that is meant to be me. And I think as I read this, I I begin to ask the question, well, why is the second commandment such a big deal, right? Like, Micah doesn't, it seems like it maybe wouldn't be that big of a deal to create this image that's God, to worship him. Why would this be such a big deal that God would say, actually, in the Ten Commandments, we're going to say don't do this. Um, Reading some resources, there's a guy, J.D. Greer, in Summit Church. Um, They preach through the book of Judges, and if if Matt and Joey hadn't admitted to you that they'd already stolen a lot of material from, from him, they have, and I did too, right? But J.D. Greer, he pointed out something that's really important for us to hear. Why are we not supposed to make an image of God? Here's why. Because an image of God cannot possibly capture the full range of God's glory. It just can't. Right? If you begin to make an image that you want to represent God, God is so big and God is so more than we can imagine and more than we can draw and more than we can shape. If we try to make an image of God, we can't put it all in there. And so what do we do? We can only include a few things. And often what we end up doing is we put the things in that image that we like best about God or that we want to be most prominent or most seen about God. If you think about God and you think hellfire and brimstone, you're going to create an image of God that highlights his his authority and his judgment and his strength, but it's going to eliminate or ignore his compassion and his grace. Or if you create an image of God that might focus on his love and his grace, you might ignore his purity, his justice. If we make an attempt to create an image of God, what happens is we leave out a lot of who God actually is. And what we're left with is the version of God that suits us best. In fact, what we're left with is a version of of God that actually looks like a deified version of ourselves. What we want, what we desire, what we think. You'll end up with an image of God that never confronts you, that always agrees with you, that always reminds you that you're good and right and in a good place. And that's not God, right? So any image that we create, it can't ever accurately and truly represent God in in who he is. In fact, it becomes a rejection of God. It becomes a rejection of God and the choice. If we don't choose God, who do we choose? Ourselves, our preferences, our desires, our wants, our needs, our beliefs. Now listen, I am fairly confident I haven't spent a lot of time in Boone with the people of Boone, but I am fairly confident that there are not very many of you that when you go home, you have a carved or metal image of God sitting in your house that you have fashioned, that you have made, and that you worship. Any, anybody like that? Yeah, if, if you do, go home, bring it back. Just put it on Matt's desk. He'll take care of it for you. No shame, no questions. Like, we don't have carved images of God around. I, I don't think that's real for most of us, but, but here's what's true. And I say that it's true because it's true of me. You and I, we each have a picture or a version of God in our minds that's not the full representation of who he actually is. Like we see God, we think about God, we focus on God in a way that we've shaped, in a way that we desire, in a way that we want. 
And that falls short of who God actually is. Or for some of you, if there are any of you that have never placed your faith in Christ, if you believe there is God, if you believe there is a God, then the God that you believe in, you must not believe that he has the authority to direct your eternity to the riches of heaven or to the depths of hell. Or you don't believe that he cares enough about you to do the work to save you. One of those or both of those must be true. Or otherwise you would have run to him for forgiveness a long time ago. But I think for maybe more of us in the room, the, the version of God that we have in our minds is off by just a little bit more of a subtle twist. Right? The version of God that, that some of you have shaped in your mind is one of an angry dictator who can't wait to squash you. And, and so the reality is you live in fear and worry because of your sin. For others, the version of God that you've shaped in your mind is that doting grandpa who doesn't think his grandkids can do anything wrong, right? And so your view of God is one that just loves you so much and cares for you so much that he would never correct you, that he would never change directions for where you're going, that he would never rebuke you or punish you. And so that has led to you coming in a place like this on a Sunday and singing praises to Jesus and then living your life the opposite of that the rest of the week. God told the people of the Old Testament, you can't make an image of me because you can't fully capture me. You can't fully describe me. And so if you try to make an image, you'll actually shape me to be the way you want and not the way that I am. And that's not just a problem that existed thousands of years ago. That is a problem that you and I deal with as well. Church, we do the same thing that Micah did in this text. He made a lesser version of God, and he said, I'll worship that. I'll worship him. And God reminds us, don't do that. All right, let's keep reading. We're going to skip verse 6, and we'll come back to it after a while. So chapter 17, verse 7. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem and Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem and Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may, where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. All right, this again, it's a text that doesn't sound that bad, but it is really messed up. All right, you have a Levite who is from the tribe of the Levites, and from the tribe of the Levites, all the priests of Israel came from. So this Levite, he was from a family of priests. He would have known what that meant. He would have known what that would be expected of. He would understand the structure and the rules and the way that you would set up a temple and facilitate worship. Like he would have known that what Micah was doing by having this little mini temple in his house with a little carved image of God, he would have known this is not okay. Like this is not godly. This is not good. This Levite would have known, hey, this guy's way off base. And yet Micah says, hey, I'll pay you a bunch of money and give you a place to live. And the Levite's like, all right, that sounds good. Let's do that. This guy knew what was wrong. 
He, he knew this wasn't okay, but for the right amount of money, apparently he was okay with it. Verse 12, and Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Micah says, now I've got my image representing who, who I want God to be. I've got a Levite who will be the priest to oversee and facilitate the worship to this carved image. I'm doing what I should do. Now, God, you have to prosper me. Like now that, that I'm doing these things, you have to obey me and follow me. You have to do what I want you to do. Micah says, now I know God will prosper me. Now I know that God will do my bidding. We'll look at the next chapter and you'll see that doesn't work out very well. Uh, we'll skip. I'm going to just summarize the next 23 verses, all right? Over the first 23 verses of chapter 18, we see the people of a tribe of Dan looking for a place to settle. And along their journey, they came upon the house of Micah, all right? And they find that Micah has this carved image inside of his house. He has a priest who's kind of overseeing this worship, and they decide they're going to go in and take it. So they're just going to walk in and steal it. And the priest says, hey, wait a minute. Like, you can't do this. You shouldn't do this. What are you doing? And the tribe says to the priest, well, hey, you're only serving one guy right now. How would you like to serve all of us? And he, again, is like, maybe the money's better. Let's go with these guys. And so they take the idol, they take this carved image, they take the priest, and they begin to go along their way. And Micah comes running up and, and catches them. And here's what he says in verse 24. And he said, this is Micah speaking, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back home. He goes back home with nothing. He lost his image of God. He lost this priest to oversee the spectacle that he called worship. And for Micah, it was demoralizing because he no longer had God at his beck and call. He, he no longer felt like God would prosper him and do his bidding because all of his stuff that he had created was stolen. But do you know what's true? Micah never had that. Micah never had God to do his bidding. Micah never had God to prosper him or to have God on the hook to do what he wanted because this whole thing was a sham. And this whole thing was an abomination to what God would see as holy and righteous and good. He was never worshiping God. Micah had simply created a version of God that looked a lot like himself. And he said, I'll worship that. Do you know what I believe is one of the purest expressions of worship? I believe one of the best expressions of worship is surrender. Surrender, because worship is ascribing to God the glory that he is due. It is us saying, God, you are all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good and all-loving. And when we actually believe that, when we acknowledge that truth, we will follow acknowledging that truth with quick surrender where we will say, God, I'm not all-knowing, and I'm not all-powerful, and not only am I not all-good, I'm all-evil, God. Worship is, 
is when we see God for who he really is and see us for who we really are. And when we do that, we will surrender quickly, readily, wholeheartedly. But the opposite of that is also true. If I do not believe that God is all-powerful and all-good and all-loving and all-knowing, if I create a version of God in my mind that that is less than who he truly is and really is, I won't surrender to him, but rather I'll try to make him surrender to me. If I don't see God for who he really is, if I fashion him and shape him and mold him into somebody that I want him to be, I don't surrender to that. He surrenders to me. See, the one who does the shaping is the one who deserves surrender. Does that make sense? Like the one who has the authority to direct and form and shape and mold, they're the ones that get surrendered to, not the other way around. God says to the people of the Old Testament, he looks at me and you and says, don't try to make an image of me that's not true. Don't try to mold me and shape me and view me in a way that's not real and true and right. You can't capture me. You can't make an image that fully describes me. So when we try to do that, God's saying, you're limiting me. You're reducing me down to a lesser version of myself. In fact, God says, when you try to do that, your God that you've got in your mind looks a lot more like you than it looks like me. Our big idea for this morning, this is just if you're a note taker and want to take something home, hopefully will remind us of this truth. Here's our big idea. Being shaped by God causes our surrender to God. Being shaped by God causes our surrender to God. We will surrender our lives to God, all of our lives. And we will keep surrendering our lives to him when we continue to realize that he is the one that shapes us. He is the one that molds us. He is the one that makes us, not the other way around. The other way around is what we saw in our text, where where Micah took this silver and tried to shape it into an image of God. And and that's not what we're to do. Sometimes when you read your Bibles, you are given a perfect example of who to be and what to do. Today, this text is not one of those. Instead, you're given an example in the life of Micah that we should do the opposite of, that we should run from. Micah proved what happens when we try to shape God rather than the other way around. Because when we try to shape God, we don't surrender to him. We try to make him surrender to us. And when we try to do that, what are we left with? What was Micah left with? Verse 24, you take my gods that I made in the priest and go away, and what have I left? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. He has nothing left. So you and I, we likely don't have carved images of God that we formed him into, but I think if you're honest and you think inside your brain about your picture of who God is, You've shaped him, and you've molded him, and you've made a version of him in your minds and in your heads. And if what our view of God in our minds, if that doesn't match who God truly is and really is, that's a version of God that's not, it's not real, it's not good, and it's not right. And that version of God, we try to shape, and we try to mold, and that version of God, we don't surrender to 
But this one we should. This one we do. And when we begin to go down that path of not believing that the God of the Bible is the actual God that exists, we begin to go down that progression that I talked about earlier, and we'll find ourselves asking questions like these. My God wouldn't punish people who were born that way, right? God is so loving, and I do a lot of really good things, and so surely he isn't concerned about my little bad habit over here, right? He he surely isn't concerned about those things. I've given God so much of me, so much of my money, and so much of my time. Surely God owes me one. And you can see the progression that can take us from being committed, missional, followers of Jesus. And over the course of a decade or two, or a generation or two, we'll find our kids saying, yeah, church, yeah, that's something I remember my mom or dad taking me to a long time ago. We skipped over verse 6 in chapter 17, and I want to read it as we, as we finish up. Because I think this phrase, it appropriately diagnosed the problem in Judges 17, and I believe it diagnoses the problem that, that exists today. Chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That sounds pretty familiar to today, doesn't it? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Why? Because there was no king. There was no king. And so everybody made their own rules to follow and did what they felt was right. And how did it end up? Chaos. It ended in chaos. And today in our world, sure, there are presidents and there are police officers and there are rules and there are laws but I believe there's a reality where even in today's world, we look and say, we're going to do what is right in our, eye, our own eyes. We're going to do what makes sense to us. You do you, right? People, people say that. What's right for you is right. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes, but how does that end for us? Chaos, tragedy, and heartbreak. But listen, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Why? Because there is a king. We have a king. His name is Jesus. And if we believe that he is the one that shapes us and not the other way around, we will quickly and readily, wholeheartedly, joyfully surrender to him. Now and next week and next month and next year, when we believe that that Jesus wants to mold us and shape us and make us into the people that he's created us to be, That will bring freedom and joy in our surrender. And we'll find ourselves saying, God, wherever you want me to go, I'll go. God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. Whatever you want me to say, I'll say. We'll sing that song again. I surrender all. And this time we'll actually mean it. And we'll actually live it. Way back at the beginning of our time today, I asked you, what is it that you are holding on to? What is it that you will not let go of and let God have possession of and control of? One of the ways that we can apply Judges 17 and 18 to our lives is by trying to examine where in our own hearts are we trying to shape God? And the result of that or the application of that is where in our lives will we not give to God, surrender to him? What are we holding tightly to? Ask yourself that question today. 
Do a little self-diagnosis this afternoon. What are you holding on to? And even better than that, find somebody that loves you and that is close to you and ask them that question. Where's the blind spot in my life? What do I have anxiety about? What do I worry about? What am I holding on to? Identify those areas that you won't let go of and then confess the lack of trust that you have in Jesus, that he is the actual king of your life all parts of your life, not just a little bit here and a little bit there, but all parts of your life. Confess that to be true, and then walk in the freedom that comes with that surrender. The story of Micah, who made this God, imagine him living his life worried and and nervous that what happens if he loses the God? What happens if the priest disappears? He no doubt existed in, in anxiousness and worry because he knew if he lost it, which he did, if he lost his God and his idol and his priest, and he did, he would be empty and hopeless, which he was. Incredible freedom. Incredible freedom can be ours when we realize and remember we don't shape God. He shapes us. He doesn't surrender to us but rather we can and and will and have the opportunity to surrender to him. I I hope you know what's true, that that when we try to shape God into the one that we want him to be, we're going to do a lousy job at that. But I hope what you also know is true. The good news is that God is far better at shaping you than you are at shaping him. Enjoy that truth. Rest in that truth. And let that cause surrender in you. Stonebridge, I hope that you know today that there is a king on the throne. His name is Jesus, and he loves you deeply, personally, intimately, with grace and care and compassion. He loves you. He loves you, and he wants to shape you and mold you and make you into the new creation that he has made you to be. He has the power to do that, and he also has the desire to do that. And I believe that when when you and I believe that truth and trust in that truth and, and rest in that truth, we will surrender our lives to him and walk in the freedom of that. Imagine for a minute being a church filled with those kind of people. People that say, God, I'm not gonna hold this back. God, I'm not gonna make you into the God that I want you to be, but I'm going to surrender to the God that you are. Imagine being a church filled with those kind of people. What could God do through you? And what could God do in you, in this community, in Boone, Iowa, and far beyond that? Church, be shaped by the God of the Bible who loves you and wants you to be the one he's created you to be. Be shaped by him be surrendered to him, and then go and be used by him today. Let's pray. Father, we have a tendency to grab a hold and make you into the God that we want you to be rather than